Method and Madness is a true crime podcast and contains descriptions of violence. Listener discretion is advised. All witnesses, persons of interest, or suspects are considered innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. The sources for this episode include police and medical reports, investigative interviews, and more, all provided by the Patton family. I don't understand why they would want to just say that Morgan's life wasn't important enough to investigate this. This is Method and Madness, Episode 75, One More Sleep, Morgan Patton, Part 2. I'm your host, Don Gandhi. Previously on Method and Madness. In the last episode, you were introduced to Morgan Patton, a 24-year-old college grad who on November 8, 2019, traveled from her home in Massachusetts down to North Carolina to visit her fiancé, Phil Brandon. It took Morgan all day to get there, and she was thrilled to be reuniting with him the following morning. You were also introduced to Phil himself, a Marine who was training at Camp Geiger near Camp Lejeune. He'd been given leave on Veterans Day weekend to spend some time off base, and he invited Morgan down so they could see each other and celebrate their recent engagement. It would be their first time seeing each other in person, since Phil popped the question over the phone. You also got to know Steve and Renee Patton, Morgan's parents, whose love for their only child was felt by not only me, but the thousands of listeners that have heard their story. On the evening of Friday, November 8th, Morgan arrived in Jacksonville, North Carolina, and checked into the Baymont Hotel and Suites on Western Boulevard, where she'd made a reservation ahead of time. She had texted her parents and her fiancé throughout the day to keep in touch. After settling in and taking a shower, Morgan headed to the Applebee's next door for dinner. Security footage showed her taking extra precautions to stay safe, by walking underneath the parking lot lights to stay visible. Once at Applebee's, she continued to text her loved ones. The final text Morgan sent was at 10.40 p.m. to her fiancé. The two had been exchanging messages about how excited they were to see each other the next morning. As the sun rose the following day, Morgan's parents, Steve and Renee, and her fiancé, Phil, were reeling from the shocking news. Morgan had been killed the night before, in a car accident 13 miles from her hotel. Filled with grief and disbelief, Steve, Renee, and Phil tried to wrap their minds around what had occurred. Considering that Morgan was a responsible woman, a cautious one at that, and was eagerly traveling 800 miles to see her fiancé, there are a lot of questions about this case. How did Morgan end up in a stranger's truck, traveling over 80 miles per hour down a dark country road? What happened leading up to the drive? And what went on in that truck? Further, when one of those strangers offers up different versions of the events and then lawyers up, and the other claims amnesia, how can a family have any sense of peace? 
or justice. Today, we'll dive into the events of that evening, what is known, what isn't known, and how Morgan's loved ones are aching for answers. This is Morgan's story. Let's dive in. A few minutes after 7 p.m., November 8, 2019, at the Applebee's located at 476 Western Boulevard in Jacksonville, North Carolina, Morgan Patton pulled a stool out and sat at the bar. Dressed casually in jeans and a black hoodie, she looked over the menu and ordered a crispy chicken salad, a water, and a Sam Adams Boston lager. It's relatable. Having traveled solo for work and for the podcast a lot, I can't count the number of times I've arrived in a new city and just wanted a meal and a glass of wine. I've done the walk across parking lots countless times to get to whatever chain restaurant is closest. It's sometimes the only way to unwind. Here is Phil Brandon. She was at the boat at 5 o'clock in the morning at God knows what time she actually got up or if she even slept because I I know how excited she was. If I had gone through the day that she went through just to get there so that we could spend time together, I know I would have wanted to go grab a drink as well. We we both love to, to people watch and she had spent so much of her time working extra hours. I'm sure she just wanted to just relax after a day of travel. It, it was the last leg of her day and you know, she she wanted her salad, her beer, she and being as cautious as she is, she ordered a water as well. And I'm sure she would have gone back as soon as she finished and and then just gone to bed. The bartender, who we'll call Adam, placed a beer on the surface in front of Morgan and made friendly small talk with the twenty four year old who said she was from out of town, visiting her fiance who was in the military. Once served her salad, Morgan ate and then continued drinking the same beer that Adam had served her. Just a note, three Applebee's employees who were on the clock that night were interviewed by the patent's private investigator, James Gilchrist, and provided details about the evening in question. This took place in August of 2020, nine months after the night in question. One bartender also provided a statement to the North Carolina State Patrol, two days after the evening in question. I will include most of the relevant information, but the names of the employees have been changed, and some of their recollections do contradict each other. As locals were getting off work and eager to start their weekend with a cocktail, the bar began to get busier. Two women arrived and sat on Morgan's left, and then two males, both wearing button-down shirts and cowboy hats, sat a few seats down to her right. When a group of people got up from the bar, vacating their stools, the two cowboys moved down so they were sitting right next to Morgan. Each of the men ordered beers, tall ones, which Adam served them. They then began engaging in conversation with Morgan, 
According to Adam, nothing seemed out of the ordinary about the interaction, and when he checked in with Morgan to see how she was doing, she seemed fine, and talked to him about how her day had been. As the two men finished their beers, they ordered another round and offered to buy one for Morgan. Adam said in his statement that he turned to her and asked if it was all right, to which she accepted but requested a small glass, not a tall. Once the second round of beers was served, the two men continued to chat with Morgan about work, the day-to-day, and the like. Adam had to step away from the bar, so he asked one of the servers, we'll call her Bonnie, to fill in for him for a few minutes. Around the same time, the two men in cowboy hats each asked for a shot of Jack Daniels and offered Morgan one as well. According to Adam, she accepted, and the bartender served up three shots. For the brief five minutes that Bonnie kept an eye on things, she said she didn't serve the men, nor Morgan, any drinks. The other bartender on duty that evening, we'll call her Cat, said in her recorded interview in August 2020 that Morgan didn't really want the shot that was offered. It seemed the men had deliberately moved to sit near her when the two seats opened up, and that they were possibly pre-gaming before going out, and were looking to buy someone a shot. They'd encouraged Morgan to accept. When Kat's shift ended shortly after, sometime between 9 and 10, she got herself some dinner from the kitchen and sat near the bar, observing and people-watching. She didn't think there was any vibe between Morgan and the two men. In fact, Morgan didn't seem to want to socialize at all. It was the two men who had engaged and began asking her questions. Kat told an investigator that when she heard the young lady, whom she referred to as a responsible loner, ended up with the two men later that night, it was hard to see why. While Kat was eating her late dinner, Adam walked back to the kitchen, and the two men asked Bonnie if they could pay their respective tabs. Bonnie handed them the device to insert their credit cards. Timestamps were obtained from Applebee's and showed the transactions occurred at 9.41 p.m. They cashed out and then continued to sit at the bar for about 15 minutes. According to Adam, in the statement he made two days later, Morgan then got up and went to the restroom, and one of the men walked out the front door while his friend stayed at the bar. Morgan's last text to her parents was sent at 9.42 p.m. that night. She said, okay, going to sleep. Two minutes later, she added, I'll text you in the morning. Renee responded, love you, good night, with a heart emoji. If Morgan thought her bill was being taken care of and was hitting the restroom before heading back to her hotel, it makes sense that she text her parents that she was heading to bed. But something happened when Morgan left the restroom at Applebee's and that something changed her plans. Adam had walked to the kitchen to get some guests their food. When he returned to the bar, the two men and Morgan were all gone. Upon seeing that his three patrons were no longer there, Adam checked in with Bonnie to make sure their tabs were paid. He discovered that Morgan's was unpaid. There was confusion. Bonnie thought that Morgan's food and drinks was on one of the men's tabs, not realizing it was a separate check. Adam reported the discrepancy to his manager. 
When Morgan's parents and her fiancé heard about this, what they know for sure is she would never walk out without paying her tab. She even worked in the restaurant industry. The most reliable information to come out of Applebee's is the timestamp on the receipts. If the two men had in fact stuck around for 15 minutes after paying their tabs, that puts their departure at just before 10 p.m. There were no cameras to capture any of the interactions at the bar, nor the comings and goings of customers, and nothing in the parking lot that would be of help either. And none of the individuals interviewed actually saw the second man, or Morgan, leave Applebee's or get into a vehicle. But somehow, Morgan Patton ended up in a pickup truck driven by one of these two cowboys. At 10.19 p.m., Phil texted Morgan, I can't wait to be home, doing life with you. Morgan responded at 10.24 with, I can't wait to see you tomorrow. A minute later, she texted, Also, people bring in cocaine onto base through pizza, just by the way. Phil replied 11 minutes later with, I can't wait either, I'm so excited. I'm going to kiss you all over. His next text, in response to Morgan's comment about cocaine, said, And do they really? At 10.40, Morgan responded with her last text to Phil, saying, Yes, they do. It was the last known communication she ever made. At 10.45, Phil texted back, That's weird as f***. Ha ha ha. The next thing we know for a fact is that a gray 2002 Chevy Silverado pickup truck driven by one of the men was going at a high rate of speed, traveling north down White Oak River Road, or State Route 1331, in Maysville, North Carolina. His companion was in the back seat of the truck, and Morgan was with them. White Oak River Road in Maysville is a two-lane road with a double yellow line separating the lanes. On either side of the road, woods and the occasional home. It was around 10.51 p.m. when the pickup truck came upon a bend in the road that curved to the right, traveling at a speed of approximately 80 miles per hour, according to the North Carolina Highway Patrol. The driver lost control of the vehicle, and it ran off the road to the right, overcorrected, and ran off the road to the left. It then struck a tree, a telephone box, and a resident's mailbox, and finally overturned and landed on a fence. The truck came to a rest on its passenger side, on the shoulder, facing south. A resident, inside a nearby home, heard the crash and immediately dialed 911. Maysville Emergency Medical Services and Fire Department were dispatched, and Kenny Adams was the first to arrive on the scene. It was a horrific sight. There were items scattered throughout the debris field. Blood, tires, metal, beer cans, red solo cups. First responders even found a rifle, broken at the stock, as well as a handful of ammunition. The driver of the truck, who'd been wearing a seatbelt, was walking in circles, muttering how he didn't mean to hurt anybody. He was identified as 22-year-old Hunter Wells, a Marine stationed at nearby Camp Lejeune, he was one of the men that had met Morgan 
at Applebee's. But he wasn't in critical condition, so Kenny proceeded to the truck. Its bed had completely disconnected from the cab due to the impact. Kenny saw that there was one male passenger trapped in the backseat of the cab, face down, one leg sticking out of the back window, and a second passenger, a woman, had been ejected and was trapped under the front passenger side of the cab on her back. It was at that point that Kenny radioed for more help. First responders were able to get the truck lifted enough that they could pull the victim from underneath the cab. They slid her out by her arms. It appeared that after she'd been ejected, the truck had rolled on top of her. She had no pulse and was pronounced dead at the scene. The driver, Hunter Wells, was taken to Camp Lejeune Medical Trauma Center without life-threatening injuries. There, Highway Patrol Officer Taylor Stokes questioned him, and she reported that he had a moderate smell of alcohol on his breath, his eyes red and glassy, as he lay in a gurney. He told Officer Stokes that he was supposed to be the designated driver that night, and that he'd only had one beer at Applebee's in Jacksonville, and that he doesn't drink and drive. At 12.57 a.m., his blood alcohol content was tested at the Naval Hospital more than two hours after the crash. It measured at .06. Ten minutes later, it was tested again and still registered at .06. Hunter Wells was issued citations for DWI and careless and reckless driving. His truck, with an estimated $15,000 worth of damage, was towed to BNS Auto Supply. The other male in the vehicle, who was in critical condition in the back seat, was hard to identify and was a John Doe for a few hours. He was carrying an ID that didn't belong to him. Eventually, police learned that his name was Charles Cornwall, an active-duty Marine stationed at Camp Lejeune, He was only 20 years old at the time and had used another person's ID in order to be served alcohol at the Applebee's where he and Hunter Wells met Morgan Patton. Charles Cornwall was airlifted to a nearby medical center and was not expected to survive. With all of the chaos at the crash site, first responders were unable to find any identification for the woman who'd been pulled from underneath the truck. They were told by Hunter Wells that her name was Morgan and she should have had a purse on her somewhere. The talk at the site, after speaking with the driver, was that she worked at Applebee's in nearby Jacksonville. It wasn't until later that it was learned she was a patron at Applebee's and that the two men she was with, well, she'd only just met that night. Here is Steve Patton explaining how his daughter was finally identified hours later. They found her phone. They said it was near her. It wasn't on her person, but it was near her. And then the officer who was responsible for the report, Trooper Taylor Stokes was her name then. It's Taylor Williams now. It was her fourth week on the job. Not that that's, I mean, everybody has to start somewhere. But she was never sent or dispatched to the crash scene. She was sent to Naval Hospital to interview Hunter Wells. And all that Hunter Wells knew was her name was Morgan, and she was from New Hampshire. He had some other information that he told her, which none of it was true. He said that she had been in town about a week, and she was staying across 
at the hotel across from Applebee's, and both of those were false. She was staying at the hotel in the same parking lot. I mean, she she may well have told them you know, a different location that she was staying. But so Trooper Taylor Stokes got that information, related back to the crash scene to Sergeant John Edwards. And so he knew her name was Morgan. And so he took her phone and he went to the hotel across from Applebee's first. And they said they had nobody there registered by the name of Morgan. So then he went to the Baymont behind Applebee's and they said they had a Morgan from Massachusetts registered. And they gave him the phone number that was on a registration and he called it and it, the phone in his hand rang. So he knew he had the right, the right person at that point. Once there was confirmation that Jane Doe was actually 24-year-old Morgan Patton, efforts were made to notify her family. Lieutenant Ed Shaughnessy of the Bradford, New Hampshire Police was dispatched out to the Patton residence, where he informed Steve of the devastating news. For both Steve and Renee, while dealing with the utter shock of what they'd just learned, they also had to make sense of a situation that was nonsensical. They knew their daughter better than anyone. They were a small, close-knit family, and something wasn't right. Morgan didn't have a car in North Carolina, and neither did Phil. She was staying in the hotel, which was a quick walk across a parking lot to the Applebee's where she had dinner. Her final text to her mom was that she was heading to bed, So how did she end up in a truck with two Marines? I think most parents would do what the Pattons did. With little information to go off of, they inquired about a possible crime, a possible kidnapping. Here is Morgan's mom, Renee. Morgan didn't know them. They didn't know her. She was there to see her Phil, and she was just having dinner, and she was going to go back to her room and see Phil the next day. She had no intentions of calling around with new people and strangers, nonetheless. And it just doesn't make any sense. But they just want to pass this off as a unfortunate accident. And there's just so much more. And there's people on the road where the accident happened. Those people need to be interviewed. And I just feel like they didn't take it seriously enough that, you know, these guys took my daughter. They got her in that truck somehow. There was a gun in the truck. What, you know, nothing's become of that. I just don't, I don't understand why they would want to just say that Morgan's life wasn't important enough to investigate this. Morgan wasn't even identified when they decided that that was the case, though. She was still a Jane Doe laying in a ditch. And they called the towing company and said, clean, make sure this is cleaned up by daylight. That was it. We talk about this a lot here on Method and Madness, the importance of an early investigation and how it makes all the difference for a case. But so much wasn't looked into, and Steve and Renee, like many family members of victims, had to search for answers themselves. Details began to trickle in, but it was a slow process. First of all, what was really known about the men that Morgan was with. Let's take a break.
Are you prepared to take charge of your safety and empower yourself in dangerous situations? Do you always want to stay one step ahead of danger? If your answer is yes, then the Visitation Podcast segment, What's Up Danger, is the perfect resource for you. It will provide you with valuable information and strategies to navigate dangerous scenarios effectively. My name is Crystal Coral, and I am a criminologist, a licensed private investigator, and a psychic medium. With my expertise and knowledge, I can help you develop the necessary skills and mindset to stay safe and confident in today's society. In today's world, being prepared and empowered is crucial to handle unexpected challenges and threats. Whether you find yourself walking alone at night, traveling to unfamiliar places, or facing confrontational situations, What's Up Danger is here to support you. Each month, I cover a wide range of scenarios, including street smarts, online safety, self-defense techniques, and situational awareness. However, for the month of January, I will be focusing on the stalking awareness campaign. It's time to shed light on the signs of stalking, how to protect yourself, and the steps to take if you find yourself in this distressing situation. If you're ready to take control of your safety, Tune into the Visitation Podcast segment, What's Up Danger? I am here to equip you with the knowledge and tools you need to confidently navigate dangerous situations. Always remember, your safety is your power. The two quote-unquote cowboys had met when they were both stationed at Camp Lejeune in North Carolina. Charles Cornwall had wanted to live somewhere other than in the barracks, and Hunter Wells had a house off base. The two became roommates, with a third person also occupying the home. Other than that, the two men weren't going to provide the Pattons and Phil Brandon with the answers they were looking for. Hunter Wells was read his Miranda rights and lawyered up. He offered up some explanations about the crash to family and friends, something we'll get to in a bit. The Pattons were hopeful that Charles Cornwall would be able to fill in the many blanks about what happened to their daughter that night, but they were waiting impatiently for him to be released from the hospital. Despite first responders being sure he wouldn't make it, Cornwall survived. He was being treated for several injuries, including a fractured left wrist, several abrasions and lacerations, broken ribs, a fractured sternum, hip and tailbone, and a ruptured diaphragm. His injuries were consistent with wearing a seatbelt. Carnwall spent 12 days in the ICU, 12 days at an inpatient rehab therapy, and 38 days in rehab recovery at his home. Reports say that he has limited memory of the night of November 8, 2019, of the crash, or the week leading up to the crash. There was a line-of-duty investigation conducted on Charles Cornwall. That investigation, along with the medical records, were reviewed by the medical officer of Headquarters and Support Battalion. The findings were that his injuries were incurred in the line of duty and were not due to his own misconduct. Here is Steve Patton. We were told that Charles Cornwall was still in intensive care due to his head injury. That... I believe that information was given to civilian investigators by his command at Camp Lejeune. And I believe it was given to him 
so that they wanted to speak to him first before he spoke to any investigators on the civilian side, because he had been home for more than two weeks at that point. There was no reason for the district attorney to tell us that he was still in, the, in intensive care unless they had been given that information. I don't know why they would have, they would have just made that up. There's no reason that they, that's the only time I think there was any, any co-mingling between the investigations. Both of them were, were faulty in their own ways. Now that we've covered a bit about who the two men were, let's get into the investigative findings. We'll also attempt to put together a timeline of events. Establishing an exact timeline is difficult when the only two people who have information are not forthcoming. But based on the timestamps of Applebee's receipts and statements made by Applebee's employees, along with texts sent from Morgan's phone, an overview has been established of what events occurred and when. A reminder that the two tabs at Applebee's were paid at 9.41 p.m. A minute later, Morgan texted her parents she was going to bed. It was around this time that she used the restroom at Applebee's. Nobody saw her leave the restaurant. When asked what they were doing on White Oak River Road that night, Hunter Wills said that he, Charles Cornwall, and Morgan Patton were going shooting, and that, on their way, they stopped to get more beer. The route from the Applebee's in Jacksonville to the crash site is 13 miles. It's a pretty direct drive from the restaurant. You'd shoot down Route 17 for some time and then make a left onto White Oak River Road. From there, it's about 1.6 miles to the crash site. And it's not the kind of area you just stumble upon. You'd probably have to know what was back there, which wasn't much but woods and homes. Pulling up the two points in the app, Waze, shows that at 11 a.m., it takes 15 minutes to get from Applebee's to the crash site. At 10.45 p.m., Waze showed me that it was a 14-minute drive from the Applebee's to the crash site. This is just a sample and doesn't include any traffic that Hunter Wells may have encountered on the night in question. But the point is, it would have taken about 15 minutes to take that drive if going the speed limit. But Wells wasn't driving the speed limit, and it was discovered through the truck's data recorder that he was traveling at 86 miles per hour when the truck left the roadway at approximately 10.51 p.m. Morgan was declared dead at 11.07 p.m. A few minutes later, Hunter Wells and Charles Cornwall were transported to their respective hospitals. At 11.42 p.m., Phil Brandon sent his fiancée this text, I hope you're getting plenty of sleep, baby girl. I can't wait to see you tomorrow. I love you more than anything in this world. Morgan's phone had not yet been located when that text came through. At 4.49 the following morning, the Pattons received word that their daughter was killed in a vehicle crash. Hours later, they traveled to North Carolina, and Phil's parents flew down there from California. That afternoon, the small clutch that Morgan had carried with her to Applebee's was found in Hunter Wells's truck, behind the rear seat, while her purse was found in her hotel room. Around 5.45 p.m., Hunter Wells was arrested and he requested a lawyer. That evening, the Pattons, along with Phil and his parents, 
met with Sergeant Edwards of the North Carolina State Highway Patrol. They were informed of how Morgan had met the two men she was in the truck with, and that according to the driver, Hunter Wells, Morgan was in the middle of the back seat and Charles Cornwall was on the right in the back seat. They were on their way to go shooting and had stopped at a store on the way to get more beer. The most obvious spot to stop at would have been the nearby Circle K located just five minutes from the Applebee's. But police had reviewed about three hours of security footage from the convenience store and didn't see Wells' truck or his passengers. Morgan's parents, her fiancé, and her fiancé's parents also learned that a broken rifle was found at the scene of the crash, missing its stock, and that it had been tossed into the truck rather than collected for evidence as it was, quote, unusable. No information was provided as to whether the rifle had broken as a result of the crash or not. They were also told that Hunter Wells wanted to share his version of the events from that night after speaking with his attorney. It's been four years, and this conversation between Hunter Wells and Morgan's loved ones has not occurred. That Monday, November 11th, Morgan's autopsy was performed at the Onslow County Medical Examiner's Office, and samples were taken for toxicology testing. Sergeant Edwards told the Pattons that if Morgan's blood alcohol content was over 0.08, that they'd assume she got in the truck willingly. Let's stop there for a second. If Morgan's BAC was over 0.08, she must have gotten in the truck willingly. So, if she were over the legal limit, she must have willingly gone with the two strangers down a dark road. Let's strike that comment and reverse it. If Morgan's BAC was under 0.08, she must have gotten in that truck willingly. What sense does it make that Morgan's alcohol consumption is a valid reason to assume whether or not she was the victim of a crime? People can make decisions with or without alcohol in their system. They can be victims of foul play with or without being intoxicated. If someone holds you at gunpoint and tells you to do something, alcohol or not, you would unwillingly oblige. The reasons for conducting an autopsy was due to the suspicious circumstances of the crash. Morgan being with two unknown men, there was particular interest in knowing if Morgan had been unknowingly drugged. Her clothing was collected along with valuables, a dog tag charm with a yellow chain, one silver-colored heart, one stud earring, five additional stud earrings, and four rings. Alcohol analysis was done, and it was discovered she had an ethanol level of 130 milligrams, which is about a 0.13 blood alcohol content. Or was it? We'll revisit that in a bit. There were no drugs found in Morgan's system, and food was found in her stomach. The cause of death was determined to be blunt force trauma and crush injury to multiple organs. Her manner of death was determined to be an accident. The DNA profile obtained from Morgan's right-hand nail scrapings is a mixture of three contributors. Morgan was the major contributor. No male DNA was detected in her vaginal, rectal, and oral swabs. A chief medical examiner, Dr. Thomas Andrew, took a look at the autopsy results and provided the Patton family with the following analysis. 
There is abundant evidence here to suggest Morgan's actual BAC was lower than reported in the central blood sample taken at autopsy, and her vitreous concentration suggests she was likely well below the legal threshold of intoxication. In his professional opinion, Morgan's blood alcohol content was more likely to be about 0.08. In October of 2020, nearly a year after the crash, Charles Cornwall was interviewed by Assistant District Attorney Caroline Fountain. He told the ADA that he didn't have a vehicle and Hunter Wells always drove whenever they went anywhere, and he often sped or was reckless. He'd even lost his driving privileges on base at one time. During that questioning, Cornwall stated that he did not remember anything from the night of the crash. He added that two weeks prior, those events were also hazy. When asked if he had anything to drink prior to the crash, he stated that he didn't know. When asked what he had to drink, he stated he didn't think he had anything and that the hospital did a blood test and failed to find any alcohol in his system. When asked where he was seated in the truck, Cornwall stated that he was told he was sitting in the front passenger seat. He said that he was wearing a seatbelt but didn't know if the airbags deployed. Cornwall once visited Hunter Wells's family home in West Virginia, and in the garage was a wrecked Ford pickup that Wells had crashed while driving drunk. Describing his own injuries from the night of November 8th, Cornwall stated he was utilizing a wheelchair during his recovery. He required speech, occupational, and physical therapy, and ended speech therapy in the spring of 2020. That was due to the result of a traumatic brain injury, or TBI, according to him. He further stated that after the crash, he had problems with impulse control, basic math and reading, and described himself as having, quote, no filter. As far as the events before, during, and after the crash, Cornwall told Fountain he had no recollections. He recalled cooking dinner one night, and the next memory was waking up at the inpatient rehab facility in late November. Cornwall also stated that he felt extreme guilt over the fact that he walked away from the crash, but Morgan Patton did not. He claimed to refuse pain medication after learning of her death because he felt he didn't deserve it. After Charles Cornwall was released from the hospital, he went to the house he'd shared with Hunter Wells to collect his belongings. Hunter's mother was there and said she was sorry for what happened. At some point later, Cornwall returned to the home to talk to his friend. Hunter Wells was there hosting a party. Cornwall said that when he walked into the home, Wells jumped on him, hugging him, and told him something to the effect of, quote, I saved your life. You owe me. Cornwall wanted details, who Morgan was, what had happened to the truck, and Wells seemed to tell two different versions of the events, though what exactly those two versions were and how they differed are unclear. One thing he did say was that Charles Cornwall was in the front passenger seat, which is untrue. He was in the back seat during the time the truck crashed. Wells said that his buddy had been, quote, hooking up with Morgan, while Charles Cornwall said he's never hooked up with a girl before. He felt that Wells was trying to shift the blame and that he didn't seem at all remorseful. 
In August of 2021, Cornwall was interviewed at his home by the Patton's private investigators, Selden Nason and Linda Sunim. The interview took place in Montana. There, Cornwall discussed how memories, and particularly names of people, are something he struggles with. However, he was able to name many of the Marines he worked with, a lance corporal, a staff sergeant, etc. He didn't know or had ever heard of Phil Brandon, Morgan's fiancé. Just a note, Phil also had never heard of Hunter Wells or Charles Cornwall. Talking to the PIs, Cornwall denied he'd been Hunter Wells' roommate and claimed he lived on base the entire time he was stationed at Camp Lejeune and didn't really remember ever having stayed at Wells' house. This is a direct contradiction from his interview with the ADA, where he stated they were living together and had a third roommate. But he did recall that he'd left some of his belongings at that house. In general, he said he didn't remember much about Hunter Wells, but that he wasn't exactly the best character. He then went on to explain how Hunter had an ex-wife as well as a child. When talking about the time he visited Hunter Wells while a party was being thrown, Charles Cornwall said they didn't discuss the accident or Morgan, another statement that completely contradicts the details from his October 2020 interview. He knew he'd ridden in Hunter Wells's vehicle several times before the crash and that Wells would speed a lot. As for the ID that Charles Cornwall had been carrying on the night of November 8th, he didn't know whose ID it was and claimed he'd never met the owner. Turns out, the ID belonged to a 25-year-old male. It was his civilian military ID, which he'd reported stolen a year earlier. During his interview with the private investigators, Cornwall confirmed that the rifle found at the scene of the crash was his, but said he didn't know why it was in the truck. When asked about the area of the crash and the road they'd been traveling on, Cornwall said he'd never been out there before and had no idea what they'd be doing there the night of November 8th. He then goes on to speculate, based on his own self-described character as a nice guy, he thinks he and Hunter Wells may have been trying to bring Morgan on base to see her fiancé. That's what made the most sense to him. But then, Charles Cornwall also stated that the crash site was not in the direction of the base and that he, quote, didn't get it. The interviewer then asked, is Wells the kind of guy that would not be appropriate with someone's fiancé? To which Cornwall replied, yes. He was aware of the theory that Hunter Wells had asked Morgan to go shooting that night, but it wasn't his own theory. And then, a conversation between Charles Cornwall and the investigators provided a bit of insight into one of the biggest questions from the night Morgan was killed. When asked what he knew about drugs being smuggled on a base in pizza boxes, Charles Cornwall replied that he'd heard about that when he was fairly new, that somebody had posted photos on Snapchat saying they were going to bring cocaine on base and that pizza delivery drivers were the ones moving the drugs. The interviewer then asks if Cornwall has ever spoken about this to anyone, to which he replied no. The next question to Cornwall was, if I was to tell you that there was a newspaper article out there that spoke about that, that would surprise you? Cornwall responded yes. 
The interviewer reminded him that he'd spoken about this very thing to a reporter before the crash. It had been a part of his duties when he was military police, and he gave that interview to his own brother, who was writing for the high school newspaper that Cornwall had graduated from two years earlier. This article, published in Park High School's The Geyser, said of Charles Cornwall, quote, As a cop, he must patrol on the base and respond to intrusion alarms, fire alarms, suicides, domestics, and DUIs. He also must work at gates and do vehicle inspections and check IDs. During traffic stops, he must frequently inspect Domino's pizza trucks that are entering the base. Cornwall was then informed by the PI that Morgan's last text to her fiancé was about Marines smuggling cocaine onto base in pizza boxes. Cornwall replied that he didn't think he'd tell Morgan that. Let's take a moment to do some deductive reasoning here. Morgan texted her fiancé that people smuggle cocaine onto base in pizza boxes. This text was sent at a time after she had met Hunter Wells and Charles Cornwall. It's not a coincidence. Charles Cornwall was a military police officer stationed at Camp Lejeune and had given an interview to a high school newspaper that one of his duties was to inspect Domino's pizza trucks entering the base. He brought up cocaine, specifically, in the interview. Therefore, Morgan was told this information by one of the men she'd met that night. But why? In what context? We'll get to that. Let's put a pin in it for now. Later in the interview, he again says that he thinks they were taking Morgan to see Phil, but can't explain why the wreck was nowhere near the base where Phil was stationed. Here are Steve and Renee Patton. I'm no mental health professional, but some of the things when he when it was the, when the conversation was casual, some of the information that was just popping out of his mind, names and dates and places. But as soon as it goes back to Morgan, he stammers and is like, yeah, I just, I don't remember anything. And I just can't make myself believe that. Going back to Lieutenant Justin Silvis, I think that was his instructions. Is you stick to the story and we'll make sure you get an honorable discharge so you can work as a, in civilian law enforcement and have a great career and collect medical benefits from the United States Marine Corps for the rest of your life because of your injuries. He's being rewarded for being so brave. He's been treated better than we have. In August of 2021, Charles Cornwall took a polygraph test at the request of the Patton's PI. The purpose of the test was to see if he was withholding information about the accident and what led up to it. He was instructed that in order for accurate results, he needed to be well-rested, have something to eat before coming in for the exam, and avoid any alcohol for 24 hours before the examination. In the pretest interview, he stated he had two or fewer hours of sleep, had not had anything to eat since the night before, and had a beer with that meal. Later in the interview, he acknowledged that he'd received and read the instructions. During the test, Cornwall stated that he had no memory of the night in question or of meeting Morgan Patton. Other than seeing photos of her after the fact, he had no recollection of what she looked like. The four questions asked were as follows. 
Regarding whether you remember anything from the night of the accident, do you intend to answer truthfully each question about that? Cornwall answered yes. This question was asked as a sacrifice-relevant question in order to introduce the three relevant questions. Those were as follows. Do you remember anything from that night? Answer, no. Is there anything from that night that you remember? Answer, no. And do you remember anything that happened that night? Answer, no. Following the examination, the physiological tracings were reviewed by the examiner. In his opinion, the tracings were too erratic and inconsistent to evaluate. At times, during the data collection phase of the exam, it appeared the examinee's physiology was being intentionally distorted. Because of the erratic tracings, the examiner had to conduct additional presentations of the questions to try to achieve the requisite amount of scorable data. It was still too erratic. The results of the polygraph were inconclusive, and it was stated that Cornwall's intentional disregard for the instructions could have added to the problem of collecting usable data. Hunter Wells's ex, who we'll call Delia, knew him since they were sophomores in high school. They'd broken up shortly after he had purchased a home, and some time before the night in question. She described their split as being a result of Hunter's drinking and anger issues. That, over the course of their relationship, she saw Wells' personality change, and he became fixated on drinking and partying. Delia was interviewed in August of 2020 by the Patton's private investigator, James Gilchrist. During that questioning, she told the PI that she didn't know Charles Cornwall and didn't know much about the crash. Her ex, Hunter Wells, had called her immediately afterward, hysterically crying. He didn't mention a woman being in his truck. He said that he was driving and hit another vehicle head-on. He believed the people in the other car were all dead. And Delia felt that her ex wasn't being honest with her. It seemed he was just making an excuse to call her. It wasn't until some time later that she learned what Wells had told her wasn't true. She said they talked later about the crash in person. In that version of the story, he told her that while at Applebee's, he met a girl who had shown interest in his friend, Charles Cornwall. The two Marines had invited the young woman to go shooting with them that night, and she agreed. Wells also told his ex that he'd been drinking and lost control of his truck. His two passengers had both been in the back seat when the crash occurred. The investigator found this information surprising. Emergency medical services had thought Morgan Patton was sitting in the front passenger seat when she was ejected from the truck, that she'd gone through the front passenger window. The PI brought up another statement, made by Hunter Wells' grandfather. He'd come to the body shop to conduct business regarding the wrecked truck and made a comment to the owners, quote, No good deed goes unpunished. The investigator, interviewing Delia, asked her if she would take that comment to mean Hunter Wells was doing the driving so that Charles Cornwall could get lucky in the back seat. Delia was asked if she was thinking the same thing regarding that comment, to which she responded, yeah. She further said, 
that her current boyfriend, at the time, speculated that the intent by Wells or Cornwall, or both, was to sexually assault the woman in the truck. The Onslow County Sheriff's Office report stated that there was no indication that Morgan Patton had been kidnapped by either Hunter Wells or Charles Cornwall. The investigation into her death left her loved ones with very few answers. The Pattons have reached out to both civilian and military investigators, lawyers, even senators, imploring someone to consider their daughter's death as something other than a tragic accident. They've been repeatedly told that there's nothing more that can be done. Let's review some of the possibilities of what went on that night and how Morgan could have ended up in that truck. We learned a lot about Morgan's character in the first part of her story. She was conscientious, responsible, a good friend, and completely head over heels in love with her fiancé, Phil Brandon. She spent an entire day traveling just to see him for the weekend. That said, it's highly unlikely, and according to Morgan's family, completely preposterous, that she'd go to Applebee's to grab a bite and throw caution to the wind, hopping into a vehicle with two men she didn't know. There had to be more to it. Hunter Wells said they were going shooting at 11 p.m. There was a shooting range at the end of White Oak River Road, but it was a private, government shooting range. Otherwise, it's just forest, and the paramedics confirmed that people do go out there and shoot from time to time. But given that it was dark out, there was only one rifle in the truck, a broken one at that, and just a handful of ammunition, it seems improbable. Renee Patton and Phil Brandon are adamant that there's no way Morgan would have gotten in the truck willingly. And given all the facts, it's hard to believe she would. But what if Morgan got in the truck under false pretenses? After the two men paid their respective tabs at Applebee's, Morgan texted her mom. Just a minute later, she was going to bed. She was then seen by a bartender going to the restroom. Phil believes she may have exited out the back of the restaurant to avoid the two men, but nobody saw her leave Applebee's. There's theories that she could have left Applebee's and was walking in the direction of her hotel and was taken, grabbed, and put into the truck, even threatened with a rifle. As of this recording, there's no evidence that supports that theory. One plausible explanation of how things went down could be as follows. Morgan, sitting solo at a bar, caught the attention of two men who, according to Applebee's staff, were offering her drinks. She wasn't looking to socialize, but she politely engaged in conversation with the two strangers. They offered to cover her tab, but they didn't, either deliberately or because Bonnie, the server, didn't realize the tabs were separate. As the two men paid their bills, Morgan got up to use the restroom and shot her mom a text that she was heading to bed. When she exited the restroom and headed for the door, one or both of the two men were still there, waiting for her. You can almost imagine the conversation, given what we know. Hey, we were thinking, if you want, we can sneak you on base to see your fiancé. Morgan, incredulous but 
eager to see Phil, says, Can you really do that? She's told, Oh yeah, you'd be surprised how much Marines can sneak onto base. Charles here knows that people sneak cocaine onto base through pizza boxes. Morgan considers this, and it sounds too good to be true, but she's encouraged. She won't have to wait another 12 hours to see the love of her life. So Morgan agrees, but opts not to tell Phil so as not to ruin the surprise. Instead, she texts him about the cocaine and pizza boxes at 10.25. This could have been immediately after the men propose that they'd sneak her on base. They then get into Hunter Wells's truck at around 10.30. Six minutes later, Phil responds to her text with, Do they really? At 10.40, Morgan responds, Yes, they do. This was approximately 11 minutes before the crash occurred. It makes logical sense that Morgan was alive and well at that time, unless someone else was using her phone to send communication. From the Applebee's, Hunter Wells heads towards a remote area in Maysville, rather than going toward Camp Geiger, where Phil is. This is because he had no intention of bringing Morgan to see her fiancé. At some point, Morgan may have realized something wasn't right. Once on White Oak River Road, Hunter's speed would have been noticeable and quite alarming to a passenger. Going 85 miles per hour on a six-lane highway feels far different than going that speed on a dark road. I imagine Morgan sitting in the front passenger seat, excited to surprise Phil, when suddenly she realizes she's in danger. She begs Hunter Wells to stop to turn around, or at least slow down. She may have even unbuckled her seatbelt to get him to stop. Here is her father. Honestly, I haven't been able to form a strong opinion about how I believe she ended up in the truck. I believe that at the time of the crash, Morgan was doing some ass-kicking in that truck, realizing that her life was in danger and she was... She was fighting for, fighting for her life. I mean, we've been told, well, it's information from Charles Cornwall that Hunter Wells drove fast everywhere he went. It'd be one thing if they were traveling over 90 miles an hour on the highway. That's driving fast. Traveling over 90 miles an hour on White Oak River Road, which is not lighted. It's just a your basic two-lane country road. He was there was something happening that he was trying to hide or get away from. Or, that's not speeding. That's, that's something drastically different than just speeding. Hunter Wells told people that Morgan was in the back seat, but paramedics thought it was more likely, based on how she was ejected and where she was found, that she was riding in the front seat. And Charles Cornwall even offers up this as a theory that being a, quote, nice guy, he could imagine they were taking Morgan to see Phil. Another piece of evidence that may show the Marines' intent that night is the amount of red Solo cups in the debris field. Red Solo cups are practically a nationally recognized party supply. They're used to play beer pong or to serve a large amount of people beer from a keg. There were unopened beers in the debris field as well. All signs that Hunter Wells and Charles Cornwall had partying on their plan for that night, not shooting, 
and certainly not being good Samaritans, bringing a woman they didn't know to visit her fiancé. If Morgan was misled into thinking she was going to surprise Phil, that she got into a vehicle under false pretenses, well, only two people on this earth know the truth. Before we conclude, let's go over a few loose ends. You may be thinking, what about Morgan's phone? Surely her GPS could provide some information as to where her location was and at what time. The Patton's attorney looked into this during the investigation but were told that the sheriff's office didn't use the GPS tracker on her phone because they did not believe that it would affect the felony death investigation. Why would Hunter Wells tell different versions of the events? He told his ex that he hit another car, and the person or persons in the car didn't make it. He told Charles Cornwall that he was in the front seat of the truck when he was actually in the back. He also said Cornwall had been hooking up with Morgan. What are the reasons for someone to tell multiple versions of an event? The likely answer is that they have something to hide. In Hunter Wells's case, his versions shift blame and distances himself from the victim. In January of 2021, Charles Cornwall was medically retired from the Marine Corps due to injuries received in the crash. He returned home to Montana, where he was hired by Fergus County as a full-time deputy sheriff in the sheriff's department. Although there is no known record of him having a head injury, he claims that his memory loss and trouble with names and dates is due to a traumatic brain injury sustained during the crash. In March of 2021, Hunter Wells was indicted on charges of felony death by vehicle, involuntary manslaughter, felony serious injury by vehicle, driving while impaired, and multiple driving infractions. His felony death trial was scheduled for November 27, 2023, but the Pattons informed me just before the recording of this episode that a plea agreement was accepted by the defendant. Morgan's loved ones, prepared to sit at trial and hopefully get answers from witness Charles Cornwall, will instead be present at Hunter Wells's sentencing on November 28, 2023. Here, Steve and Renee tell me what they're most frustrated about, most angry about. The two guys that were with Morgan when she was killed, and obviously because of what happened and because the biggest is the biggest part is that we don't know everything that happened the not knowing is more aggravating than than anything we're angry at at i I don't want to say the united states marine corps because there's a lot of good marines phil being one of them and i'd like to think that i was at one point i don't hold a grudge against the united states marine corps but there are marines that were stationed at camp lejeune that that have done some things to hinder the investigation that I'm angry about. And I'm angry at all of the people that we've written to up the chain of command in the Marine Corps and the Naval Criminal Investigative Services that don't seem to care that we can prove on paper that they screwed up this investigation. They they say, what's done is done. We're not going to revisit it. 
well, I think it's, we think it's worth revisiting and, and getting it right. I mean, one of these guys is working as a sheriff's deputy now. And the only way that was allowed to happen is he was honorably discharged from the Marine Corps. And the only way that was able to happen is he lied during the investigation. We don't know the extent of his injuries. It's We just find it odd that the Marine Corps didn't even list a head injury as to the reasons why he was being discharged. But we know that he lied about wearing a seatbelt and not having any alcohol in his system. And we know that he talked to the investigator, the Marine Corps investigator, about having a stolen identification card in his pocket. But it was it never showed up in the report. The Marine Corps covered all that up. They swept it his record clean. And so none of that showed up when they did a background check on him, but we know they discussed it. So he's being rewarded for what he's done. That's the way I look at it. You know, they, I, I feel as though Lieutenant Justin Silvis, whose name doesn't appear anywhere, but I know that's who conducted the interview. It was his own platoon commander, which I think is a conflict of interest to begin with. But when he conducted that interview, which was timed at 40 minutes, that they, he, he was only asked a handful of questions and the answers were a lot of them were one word answers. So I think in the rest of in the remaining time of that interview, he was coached on exactly what to say in order to get his honorable discharge. I can't prove that, but I know that the answers are there and nobody will help us get them. Have you ever had a chance to speak with either of the men? I did call Charles Cornwall and I asked him, I just asked him. This was well over a year ago. It was after the first time that the trial was the trial for Hunter Wells was postponed. And I called him. I just asked him if there was anything else he could remember that he hadn't spoken to investigators about. And he said, there's nothing I can't remember. I don't remember anything else. And I said, well, thanks to you, your your buddy's probably going to get off the hook or something anyway. And I. I, I couldn't carry on the conversation anymore. I just, I'm just, I don't believe a word either one of them say. Hunter Wells hasn't spoken to anyone. Well, anyone as far as investigators or certainly us. So he was given a court-appointed attorney the day that he was arraigned after he had told his arresting officers that he wanted to tell the story, but he needed to speak to an attorney first. Those were the exact words that were relayed to us is we're going to find out what happened because he told us he wants to tell the story, but he needs to speak to an attorney first. And as soon as he spoke to the court-appointed attorney, he invoked his right, right to remain silent and has maintained that for almost four years. I think that both of them remember everything that happened. That's what I, that's what I believe. And they can't hold it in forever. And as a matter of fact, there may be people that they've already told. I think this should have been more of a investigation. That's nothing. Nothing was done. There were so many more rocks to turn. There were so many people to talk to. There were so many things that could have been done that is constantly ignored or just not important enough to them because it's too hard. It's yeah. too hard to prove. Not that they couldn't prove it, but they say it's too hard. And I think that's just insulting. I I think they felt it was a waste of resources to, to really dig into this. 
Nearly 1,000 people attended Morgan's memorial service, which was held at her high school auditorium in North Sutton, New Hampshire. Here is Phil Brandon. I feel incredibly lucky to have known Morgan. She's just the most beautiful soul that I've ever met. I feel lucky to have had her in my life. And I just wish that her and I had more time together. I mean, our our relationship was only a year and a half long. And I was gone for about six months of that. And for us to have as strong of a connection as we did in that short amount of time, I think says a lot about who she is as a person and how she inspired me to be better for her. So that's, that's really all I wanted is I, I wanted to be a better person for her because she deserves it. Just days before Morgan passed away, she had selected a special song for her wedding, the father-daughter dance. Morgan had written down the song that she wanted her and I to dance to. Uh, that's the only thing I remember in her notes. Do you want to share what it was? It was I Love You to the Moon and Back by Dolly Parton. Thank you to Steve and Renee Patton and to Phil Brandon for sharing Morgan with us. To keep up with Morgan's story, join the Facebook page Miles for Morgan and visit Steve and Renee's blog at morgansmilestogo.com. Check the show notes for more details. Thank you for listening to this episode of Method and Madness. If you haven't already, please leave a rating or review, and don't forget to hit that follow button. To connect, I'm on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at Method and Madness Pod. To chat, suggest a case, or discuss the episode, you can reach out to me at methodandmadnesspod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is researched, written, and hosted by me. Sound editing is by Mo and Spo. That's it for this week. Until next time, take care of yourself. For crisis support, text HELLO to 741-741.